Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. If you've got a Bible, why don't you open it to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, the very last chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes, is where we will be today. And I'll invite up our reader. Ecclesiastes 12, 8 to 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, I want to be the first to congratulate you. You've made it to the end. The end of our journey through Ecclesiastes. And for some of you, the arrival at the author's conclusion, it really hasn't come soon enough. For some of you, you've found Ecclesiastes to be the most depressing thing you've ever read. And you've been questioning for two or three months now why it's even in the Bible, much less why we as a church would take the time to open it and study it together. But I realize there are others of you who have found a faithful friend in the preacher of Ecclesiastes, someone who's been able to sit with you in difficulty and hard moments in life. Someone who's given language to some of the tension that you feel where you believe in a good God, but you live in a broken world. And I know for me, that's been very true in my own life. I've found a companion and a friend in this passage or in this book, in this message that's given to us. Because I too have dealt with the frustrations and still do of life in a sin-splintered, broken world. My hope really though for all of us, whether you've hated it or loved it, my hope for all of us is that against the bleak backdrop, that the preacher has given us and forced us to look deeply into against that bleak backdrop, my hope has been that the gospel has shined better and brighter than ever before. It's kind of like the, the dark black velvet uh, backdrop that's typically put behind a diamond that they're trying to sell you in a jewelry store. Not that I buy many diamonds. It's been once in my life. Hoping not to do that again, but I remember them taking a light and shining it against that bleak backdrop to let the light refract and, and begin to shine brighter back to me to show the true beauty of it. And the author of Ecclesiastes, this preacher, has really served as that black backdrop, giving us the opportunity to see the beauty of the gospel in a whole new depth and brightness. And so my hope is that you've been encouraged through this process. You remember as we jump back into the text that there's really two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. There is an author, and his goal is for you to hear the voice of the preacher. And then that second voice in Ecclesiastes is the preacher, and his goal is that your bubble be burst. Remember, Ecclesiastes will not let you look away from brokenness in our world. He wants you to see the system glitches. There's no easy fix or no life hack that will guarantee you the life that you want. 
Ecclesiastes then serves as a provocator, poking you with the goad, as it says here in chapter 12, verse 11, that shepherd's staff that they put a pointy end on it, used to drive sheep in the right direction. That's what he's looking to do here. His goal, it's not to depress you. His goal really is to free you from the empty entrapments of our sin-splintered, broken world. And the way that he'll free you is by pushing you far from them. That's what he's been doing. What we've discovered is that the preacher, he had the health and the time and the resources to do and experience all that you and I, if we're honest, have ever dreamed thinking that if I only had more, fill in the blank, then and only then my life would be complete. Well, he had the health, the time, and the resources to grasp onto everything that we thought would make our life complete, whether it was more wisdom or passion and pleasure or success and satisfaction or just more power and influence or just a little more time he talks about or maybe some more friendships or maybe even the answer is just more stuff is another topic he put on the stage for us. But our spokesman and figurehead has stood to his feet and raised his hand again and again throughout this series saying, I've had it all and it's all vanity. It's all empty. It's all hevel, remember, is that Hebrew word. And we've seen the preacher of Ecclesiastes has masterfully utilized nuance and some eloquent wordsmithing to use that word hevel, not just to express that something is temporary. Remember, it means like a shallow breath. But also, he's used it in moments to express that something cannot be grasped or comprehended. It's like a puff of smoke. When you light a match, it's here for a moment and gone in the next. But worse still, it's there, and yet it can't be grasped and held on to. And that's what life sends our way. Things happen quickly, but worst of all, the things that happen, we can't fully grasp or understand. We have a good God, and we can even say we're doing our best, but life is difficult. You see, this is what we found the mantra of the voice of Ecclesiastes to be. Nearly 40 times we've heard this word hevel, or is translated in many of your Bibles, vanity, over and over again. Each time he's not stating that someone is overly fixated on themselves, as we think of someone as being vain or dealing with vanity, nor is he referencing a piece of furniture that a woman might sit on in order to do her makeup in the morning at a vanity. No, he's using the word hevel to bring us face to face with our mortality, and the incomprehensible realities of life in our sin-splintered, broken world. The intentional use and overuse of that word, hevel, it's the preacher's way of communicating that life is enigmatic, it's shrouded in mystery, that life is a paradox. And he's worked really hard to show you the paradox that he wants all of us to see with clarity. And that paradox is that your life is lived under the sun, but that the meaning and purpose for life cannot be found under the sun. Remember, the voice of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, he's assuming that all that is seen is all that there is. That's what he calls life under the sun. The idea is that there's nothing above or beyond the sun. And the book has shown us that life under the sun is not just showing us the brokenness of creation, but that ideology of life under the sun, that belief in paradigm has been seen to be so very destructive. Because if there's nothing but what's under the sun, no life beyond it or above it, what we found is that what he said is true. It's all empty then. It's all enigmatic. It's all just this empty paradox that makes no sense. But for us, we're at the point now where we have to ask the question, is there any hope beyond the voice of Ecclesiastes? Because he's leaving us in a pretty, pretty bleak and hopeless spot after intentionally deconstructing all that we chase in life and all that we seem to trust in. He's deconstructed all of it. 
There's a really unique book on the book of Ecclesiastes that artist and author Robert Short, what he does is he pairs modern photos that were modern in the 60s and 70s when he wrote it with observation that the preacher of Ecclesiastes makes about society. And I really appreciate how he viewed this ancient book of Hebrew wisdom literature. He wrote saying it this way, and I quote, Ecclesiastes is essentially a kind of negative theologian asking questions that can be answered only by a future revelation of God and clearing the road for this revelation by smashing any and all false hopes to pieces. Ecclesiastes is the Bible's, this is what I like so much, the Bible's night before Christmas. It's true that we found this, haven't we? That Ecclesiastes, it's this tumultuous, bleak backdrop that leaves us longing for the dawn of a new day, a hope-filled day where maybe there's some rejoicing and celebration, but we're waiting with bated breath like children on Christmas Eve. Again, it's our night before Christmas, Robert Short says. Thankfully, the preaching king from the line of David that's recorded in Ecclesiastes, he's not the final voice on life under the sun. And for us today in 2023, hindsight is 2020, and we have the gift of time and perspective that can look back and with clarity see a second and greater preaching king from the line of David. We have Jesus in our view who would not just enter the broken world and experience all that we gasp from and all that we cannot grasp, all that is hevel in life leaving us with the confidence that he understands us and can help us, but he would also go to a cross and rise from the grave in order to prove to us that all that is is not all that there is, or all that is seen is not all that there is because there's life above and beyond the sun. He showed us that there's life everlasting. This is the journey we've been on, but what is the conclusion of his discourse? Remember that there are technically two voices in Ecclesiastes. There's the author and then the preacher. And the author, he merely comments at the beginning, and then we're going to read his comments at the end of the book this morning. The preacher, however, he's taken us on a journey for 12 chapters, beginning with this statement in chapter 1, verse 1, where he makes this statement, remember, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that's the pen of the author, the moderator. He's now introducing you to the preacher. Here's the preacher's first words. Hevel of hevel, all is hevel. Remember, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. For what profit, chapter 1, verse 3, has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? He's asking, what's the point and the purpose of life? And pronouncing all of it to be vanity, to be empty, remember, to be hevel. It's here in a moment, gone in the next. It's like a puff of smoke. It can't be grasped or comprehended. But did you notice that he also ends with that very same statement? He bookends his whole dissertation. Chapter 1, verse 1, and then chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity, hevel of hevels, all is vanity, he says. He's telling you one final time that in the end of his entire life's pursuits, he's found that it left him empty and wanting more. He's saying that nothing ever gave him the satisfaction or purpose that he sought after, and he's saying it with the final exclamation point by reminding us and repeating it again here. And it's true, life is full of the stuff that he'd call hevel. It's been true for us even as a church as we've studied through this, where we've had the joys that we've celebrated together during this stretch of time. 
wonderful joys, the arrival of new life and a baby that was born into our church and of a spring wedding of another couple and, and an engagement worth celebrating of still another couple in our church and then sending off the Jack family onto the mission field as they follow the call of God and we get to support them and be a part of that work. We've celebrated a lot over the last couple of months, but we've also mourned and grieved a lot of loss, serious loss, deep loss. We've experienced the realities that the preacher is telling us about, not just as print on page, but in our own life experience over this stretch of time. For me personally, for our family, we, we stepped into this at the arrival of spring, and then, and then the soon looming reality of summer and joy and family time and beach days and sunshine and all sorts of good things, things that we've celebrated and enjoyed all the while, over this whole stretch, though, of these last few months, I've taken daily calls or text messages from a dear friend I have who's strung out on drugs yet again and back on the streets, where I have this looming reality and reminder that not everything is good. Sometimes it's really hard. At the same time, there's another individual who calls me almost every day who I deeply love, whose mental health has crashed so badly that it's left him on a collision course with what looks like life on the streets for him as well. I'm seeing that things don't always work out the way that we had planned, and I'm seeing the brokenness in life and feeling the heartache, as so many of you have as we've walked through this, that we've agreed with the preacher, not just because it made sense, but because our life has told us it's real. The voice of the preacher, it's echoed loud in each of our ears. But it's true that the Bible begins and ends with the statement that God made things good. Whereas here in Ecclesiastes, it begins and ends with the observation and statement that everything is hevel. However, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he will not have the final word. You see, the preacher's message comes to a close, but then the pen of the author, you probably notice the transition, is lifted off the page and it allows for him to now have the final word. No longer the preacher, but now we'll hear from the author's commentary and perspective. The preacher's final word, chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanities, it's all empty vanity. But verse 9, moreover, this is the author now writing, here's his commentary on the whole thing. Picture it like a lecture class where the you'd go into some sort of a philosophy class and the lecturer would start by saying, today we consider this famous thinker. And then he embodies him by sharing all of his thoughts on life and the world. And at the end of it, he steps out of that character and says, now I want you to consider a few things that we've now seen maybe a bit differently. Or maybe I want you to consider what he said, but in light of that, I want you to think deeply about this too. This is now the author stepping out of the character of the preacher and sitting down to give you a commentary on his thoughts. And he says, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words and what was written was upright, words of truth. The author's telling you that the preacher cared about, yes, the content, but also about the way that he masterfully sculpted and presented his content. And I'll tell you, as a preacher, this is something that I'm very passionate about, too. It's in the words of the Prince of Preacher, C.H. Spurgeon. He says that there are many more flies caught with honey than with vinegar. I think a preacher's words are very important, and it's something the author attributes to and even kind of compliments the preacher here on. But when you think about it, the voice of Ecclesiastes, this one who calls himself the preacher or Koheleth, he's not really much of a preacher. Because a preacher, yes, needs to give language to the deep-seated questions that reside in our hearts, but he needs to give answers for them, too. 
A good preacher doesn't just put language to your questions. He's meant to give answers that are transcendent and eternal. But he doesn't really do that, does he? You see, our preacher here in Ecclesiastes, he does give language to those deep-seated questions and despairs, but he's more like a philosopher than a preacher because he fails to pull us from that tension that we feel with him to any real clarity or certainty of an answer. But our author's pen, it continues. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, and the words of the scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end. Much study is wearisome to the flesh. He's saying he finally is cutting the preacher off so that he doesn't continue because he's just going to wipe us out. But here's our question that he's, he's, I think, kind of couching for us. And that's this. Have you allowed the words of the preacher to poke you with the goad to make you uncomfortable? Have you been willing to feel the uncomfortability of facing life in a sin-splintered, broken world? Like a good shepherd who pokes his sheep with a stick with a sharp end on the own, or a sharp end on it, a goad, have you allowed God to drive you from your place of comfort and, and lethargy to push you away from that dangerous space and empty facade and to push you back into his eternal embrace? Have his words served as tent spikes driven deep into you, not allowing you just to simply shake it off? to shake off the realities that he's teaching us about. He's wanting you to see and feel these things in an unshakable way. Has he successfully dismantled and deconstructed all the ways separate from God that we search for significance and security? All the ways we've searched for the good life, as we've called it. Here's what he says. He says, oh, let the conclusion of the whole matter be heard. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is it, he's saying. This is what it's all about. This is why he had us sit and listen to this tormented preacher through 12 chapters, because he wants to draw this conclusion with him and with us. But I'll tell you, the conclusion can almost feel a bit tormenting to us. Because his conclusion is, in the end, what you need to do is fear God and obey him. He says here, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He's really saying, this is what will fulfill men and make them whole, because that's what the whole journey in Ecclesiastes has been about. So what's going to fulfill men and make them whole? Fear God, he says. Keep his commandments. Fear God, finite men. Need an infinite God, he's saying. Keep his commandments, and he's telling you that that God must receive his position and place as Lord over your life, where you will follow him, not your own heart's desires. Nothing else, no one else will do, as we've seen along this journey with the preacher. But why would we do this? Why fear God? Why obey his commandments? Well, he answers the why right after that. Verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's telling you that nothing finite or temporal will do because you too will live forever after you've been justly judged. So here's what I want to do with you. I want to wrap up our time this morning and our our run through the book of Ecclesiastes by talking about the conclusion here that the author gives to us and what it means for us. Because he mentions the fear of the Lord and then the justice in eternity to come. And then he even mentions here a reference to a single shepherd who's behind all the wisdom of men. 
who uses this, this single shepherd uses even life's experience to goad us, to push us in the right direction. What an interesting statement that there's a single shepherd at work behind everything. Especially when you consider in the Old Testament, God is again and again characterized as a shepherd over the sheep of Israel. And it's such positive terms. It means that he protects us, he provides for us. Especially think of how interesting this is. If this is in fact Solomon who's writing these things, think about his father David and what he would write in Psalm 23 about the Lord our good shepherd. Many scholars pick up on this and say, oh, there's a little note here that's supposed to take your mind somewhere else in Scripture to show you that he has confidence in the things that his father David had confidence in. Listen, maybe you're already thinking, though, the, the fear of the Lord. What in the world is the fear of the Lord? Well, I'm sure you know because this is such a popular talking point for all of us, right? We often talk about fearing God or being afraid of him. Well, not so much, really. In fact, the truth is in our modern setting, the fear of the Lord is rarely talked about seemingly because we've already got a long enough list of things that we're fearful and anxiety-laden from. We don't think that, that it, it makes, makes much sense for us to add another thing and then to assume that adding another fear in life that's already laden with fears and anxieties, that adding another fear would be a good thing for us. Listen, I'd argue that I think fear animates more than we'd care to admit in our lives. And I think the message of the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole embodies and illustrates this for us. Stay with me. Don't let me lose you. I think your fears are what drive you in the direction of all of these other broken desires and patterns that the Ecclesiastes narrative has staged for us. But he is saying that there is a fear that silences all other fears. Maybe that sounds too harsh and aggressive for me to say, I think that you have all of these fears that drive you to the same things that drove the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Rather than even giving a collective you or a collective us, I'll just use myself as an example and as exhibit A. My fear of insignificance drives me towards power and puts in me the capacity to misuse and abuse it, just like the preacher of Ecclesiastes found in himself. My fear of being perceived as incompetent or less than drives me towards the desire to accumulate wisdom, just like it did for him, and it drives me into broken patterns of comparison, just as it did for him. My fear of missing out drives me toward the, towards the desire for more time, my fear of others being more successful than me, leaving me potentially feeling less and to be seen as less than, it drives me to the desire for more stuff, just as it did him. My fear of loneliness, of not being known and loved, drives me towards the desire to be admired and to have more influence or even just to be loved. Think this through with me because I think it's pretty wild that the fear of the Lord is being used here as a statement piece to say that there is an antidote for all of this. For all that the voice of Ecclesiastes has preached against, now the author saying, and the antidote to all of it is a fear that dispels all fears. Everything the preacher has chased, I can find myself chasing because of not just broken desires, but broken fears. Lesser fears, distorted fears, whether it be wisdom or pleasure or time and autonomy or love or influence or stuff, it's my own brokenness. Yes, and my fears that drive me in those directions. But he's saying here, there is a fear that dispels all fears. And forgive me today for quoting pretty much exclusively from old dead guys who preach generations before us, but modern preachers don't write or talk about this. Because this is a weird thing for us as modern people to talk about the fear of God. 
we're a little uncomfortable with it. And we, we already feel a little jumpy, like, hang on, we have a loving God, and so he shouldn't be feared. But shouldn't God be revered and feared because he is so loving and we are so undeserving? It's G.K. Chesterton that said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. When man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. Oswald Chambers said the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. My friends, it may be true that we fear circumstances so much in life because we fear God so little in life. It may be worth repeating that the truth in our modern setting is that the fear of the Lord is rarely talked about seemingly because we've already got so many fears and anxieties already present inside of us that we'd think it mindless to try to add another one, much less to assume that it's a good decision to add another fear. But you and I know that there is a such thing as healthy fear. It's what all of us should have about the ocean. I don't know about you, but I've been overwhelmed in the ocean before. It wasn't long ago. Uh, it was in the winter when it was big one week. I paddled out, and I think I told you about that U-turn of shame I made where it's like paddled out real confident, got out to the set waves, turned right back around, and paddled as fast as I could back in because the sheer, the sheer power and force of the ocean has this sobering feeling. I love it. I love to be there and to be in it. I love to admire it and to take in the beauty of it. But I also have a realistic view of it. And I fear it. I have a respect, a healthy, reverential respect for the ocean. If you do not have that, it is a dangerous thing and it's foolish. And the fear of the Lord, it is a positive fear that has a way of conquering and dispelling all other fears. See, the fear of the Lord, it's a topic and reality found right from the beginning of the Bible that echoes all the way to the end of the Bible. It's crazy. It's not in my notes, but I was reading it this week. There's a prophecy in Isaiah, and, and speaking of Messiah to come of Jesus, it references that Jesus would have a fear of the Lord, that even Jesus would have a heartfelt reverence and fear of God, which caused Jesus to be able to say in John's gospel, I only speak what the Father speaks. I only do what the Father calls me to do. He submitted his life to the Father in light of, according to Isaiah, the fear of God that was present even in his own life. But it began long before Jesus. It began in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were immediately aware of their sin and nakedness and shame, and they felt exposed in that moment and unable to hide themselves or to hide their rebellion from God. The fear of the Lord in that moment was the byproduct. Please hear me, because this is how it works in each of our lives. The fear of the Lord is always the byproduct of our awareness of his presence and of our sinfulness. That's what, come, that's what produces the fear of the Lord in us. Our awareness of a holy God's presence and our own sinfulness and unholiness. This is precisely what Adam said to God in Genesis 3.10. He said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was aware of your presence, he's saying. And then he said, and I was very afraid because I knew that I was naked. He's telling you, I felt the shame as a byproduct of my rebellion and sin. And that's why I was so afraid. The writings of the great preacher of a generation ago, A.W. Tozer, came to mind for me this week in thinking about the fear of the Lord because he writes so beautifully and so much about it. Tozer defined the fear of the Lord as astonished reverence for God. It is placing God in his proper place and humbling myself to my proper place beneath him. 
Tozer said it this way, and it's a long quote, but it'll be on the screen for you. Such fear is a supernatural thing, having no relation to threats of punishment. It has about it a mysterious quality, often without much intellectual content. It is a feeling rather than just an idea. It is the deep reaction of a fallen creature in the presence of the holy being that the stunned heart knows is his God. The Holy Spirit alone can induce this emotion in the human breast. All effort on our part to superinduce it is wasted or worse. The current trick of frightening people into accepting Christ by threatening them with an atom bomb and guided missiles is not scriptural, neither is it effective. By shooting off firecrackers in the face of a flock of goats, you could conceivably succeed in herding them into a sheepfold. But all the natural fear in the world cannot make a sheep out of a goat. And neither can fear of a Russian invasion turn impotent men into lovers of God and righteousness. It just does not work that way. What causes the fear of the Lord? The knowledge of our own sinfulness meeting with, colliding with an awareness of our ever-present God's holiness. Holiness, it just means categorically different. That he's transcendent and different from anything or anyone we would ever encounter. Remember, the fear of the Lord, it's the byproduct of our awareness of his presence and of our sinfulness. And this is what you see as a pattern in scripture. It's Abram. When he finds himself in the presence of God, he lays himself down on the ground to listen to him. It's Moses who saw the Lord in the burning bush and hid his face for fear to look upon God. It's Isaiah, who, the prophet, who's a beautiful example of this, where Isaiah has this awesome, awe-inspiring moment where he finds himself in the presence of God and immediately, simultaneously, he's struck with the awareness that he is unlike God. For God is holy, high above, set apart, and perfect, and Isaiah is undone in his presence. And he yells and says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and, and I'm in the very presence of a perfect holy God. I'm a dead man. I don't belong here. I, Isaiah instantly becomes aware of his imperfection and sinfulness in light of the presence of a holy God. But it's so beautiful in that story because this is where the grace of God followed his encounter with the fear of God. Hear me say that. The grace of God follows the encounter with the fear of God. Do you remember the story? Because an angel shows up as he's trembling in fear and reaches out and grabs from the altar of sacrifice a coal. And it was used, or, or excuse me, I should say it this way. And it was used to make what was already clean. He cleansed. He cleansed him who was unclean by taking something that was clean. Okay, track with me because I just lost you there. Our fear, if you read through the Old Testament, is all of these clean laws that say, if someone's unclean, stay away from them because you will become unclean through them. Now, that's true of diseases. Don't touch the person with leprosy lest you receive it from them. But it was the same with wickedness in the sight of God. And so all throughout the Bible, it's compounded again and again. So don't have a clean person touch the unclean. And there he is trembling in the presence of God thinking, I'm unclean. How can I be made clean? And then the clean thing from the altar of God is taken and touches the unclean and purifies him, making him clean. Track with me. What a picture of Messiah Jesus, who would come and touch the leper, who would come and reach and touch the Gentile, who would sit with the Samaritan woman. Jesus, who is not afraid of, of the clean becoming unclean, but Jesus instead the clean, the righteous, making the unclean righteous and clean again. 
Is he has this encounter with the grace of God that followed his encounter with the fear of God. Again, quoting Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, no one can know the true grace of God who has not first known the fear of God. All throughout the scriptures, the presence of God always produces fear in the hearts of men. Their fear was not a mere deadly uh, fear of bodily harm. It's not the triggering of some survival instinct that God pre-wired within them and they're afraid that he's going to slap them and crush them. Instead, you find that where God is present, men are slapped with the reminder and the reality of his holiness and their unholiness, of his otherliness and their broken, fallen sinfulness. You see, the fear of the Lord, it's the byproduct of our awareness of God's presence and of our sinfulness. And therefore, the fear of the Lord then becomes the catalyst for humility and love. The fear of the Lord then becomes a catalyst for, fear, or for humility and love in the lives of God's people. Because we place God in his proper place and humble ourselves to our proper place beneath him and find ourselves worshiping him because of it. Sure, with a song, but even more so than that, with our life and obedience in our whole heart. As we find ourselves questioning, well, how could a God love me who should judge me? What a wonder that his love for me is so powerful that he'd even choose and be willing to be judged for me in order to love me and embrace me. Again, quoting from Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, the greatness of God rouses fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. C.S. Lewis, I think, masterfully illustrates this in the amazing epic story, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's that scene where the four sons of Adam, remember, they make their way into Narnia, this fanciful land, and these four children are there, and they're hearing about Aslan, and they're beginning to ask, who is this king? Who is this, this ruling figure? Is he a man? And you remember, they respond back to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver do and say, no, 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 he's not a man, he's a lion. And the children are afraid. And you remember that they begin to ask him whether he's safe or not. A lion, not a man. Well, is he safe? And at that, Mr. Bieber responds and says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's king, I tell you. You see, in Narnia, Aslan reigns as both the sovereign Lord as well as the good and gracious king. And then the oldest son in that story in the Chronicles of Narnia, Peter, he, he's the oldest of the four, and he responds appropriately in that moment to the unsafe but good Jesus figure, Aslan. And he says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. It's this really beautiful picture where Peter, or like Peter, we will find a proper understanding of God leads us to a sense of awe of him, of reverential fear, and at the same time, a longing to know him and to be with him. I do not have to be terrified of God. I can humbly worship him as God, placing him in the rightful place over, over my life as Lord and King, while responding then to the invitation to become also the friend of God, because of his gracious love and provision and sacrifice for me. The ancient psalmist, King David, he penned in Psalm 25, verse 14, that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. 
I love how the English Standard Version translates it. It says it this way, the friendship of Yahweh is for those who fear him. The friends of God are those who fear him. I don't know that I have a friend that fears me. To be honest, I'm like five, eight, and an eighth. I don't know that anyone has ever feared me in my entire life. But think of what's being said here, that friendship and reverential fear are interconnected in our relationship with God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, some people argue this is really the, the, the I guess you could call it like the, the main point of all of Proverbs. This is like its thesis statement where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. It's saying this is the very foundation of life, for life the way that God intends it to be. What's the foundation of it? To fear the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In the Bible, wisdom is a moral category as opposed to just an intellectual one. It's not just knowing the right thing. Wisdom is about doing the right thing. Proverbs 14, verse 26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children have a place of refuge. The psalmist is declaring that the person who has a healthy respect, a reverential fear for God, will be committed to him, leaving him in confidence of God's care and character and promises. To quote C.S. Lewis again, this time from Mere Christianity, he says, In God you must come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The psalmist in Psalm 33 verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Spurgeon, he said, He who fears God has nothing else to fear. It's what you see in the book of Exodus where the children of Israel gathered around Mount Sinai. And Moses begins to tell them as they're fearful and trembling at the sight of the glory and presence of God surrounding the mountain where they will receive the Ten Commandments. Moses says for the, to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that his fear may be for you so that you will not sin. Moses communicates that God brought them there so that they would fear him, God, alone. And in doing so, they were able to be freed from their other fears of pharaohs or famines or any other thing. Jesus would echo this sentiment in saying in Matthew 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not make the mistake of thinking of the fear of the Lord as merely a negative thing, though. It is a tremendously powerful and positive thing that should exist in the hearts of all of God's people. Our real issue is that our fears are often misguided and misplaced. It's super popular in Christian circles over COVID. Faith over fear, we said. It may be popular. It may have sold a lot of t-shirts. And yet it might be foolish when the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're going to have fears. We are human living in a broken world faced with our mortality each day as we see decay and death all around us. 
Fear of the market collapsing is understandable, but it's misguided. Fear of God putting him in place and position of authority over you, and you are freed from that fear of the marketplace crashing. Because you have a God who promises to provide, who is, as it said here, is a good shepherd who cares for his sheep. You see, if you have a fear of God, then you're freed from from the fear of the market collapsing. Or, Or the same is true of the fear of death, because you have someone who take you through the valley of the shadow of death. A fear of God, it will cure and and dispel the fear of loneliness. It's a game changer for any and all things that you or I can fear in life. And I don't want to oversimplify this and say, so it's like two aspirin, take two a day and then, you know, call the doctor. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. It's not like that. This is the tension we live in where we have to have a mindfulness of God as the antidote for all of the fears that animate and drive us. You see, please hear me, healthy fear that is fearing the right thing is incredibly liberating to us. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The ancient Hebrew wisdom literature of Job affirms this very thing when Job pronounced, and to man God said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. Moses instructed uh, future kings in Israel that they were to handwrite their own copy of the ancient Hebrew scriptures, saying that they should copy it and read it daily as long as they live. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. Then Jesus arrives. The God had clothed in flesh and walking amongst us. And in doing so, he's answering all of our questions we have about our mysterious and distant God that we fear. And when he comes, he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. Our love for Jesus is the byproduct of our seeing him for who he is. He is God Almighty who humbled himself and gave himself for us. Listen, if you view the love of God if your view of it is that it makes God passive and permissive, then you are gravely mistaken and you lack the very foundation of wisdom itself, the fear of God. God is not passive and permissive. Christ suffered for your sin and bled to death. And God will not be mocked. If you're brazen in your sin and continued rebellion, then how can you say that the fear of God is in you or that the love of God has saved and transformed you? If I was deserving of the wrath of a just God because of my sin, and I am less intimidating to him than an ant is under my own foot, and yet I am simultaneously so loved by him that he exchanged his own life for mine, how could I not obey the one that has loved me, the one that I now have come to love? Now, that's not to say that I will obey every time perfectly. No, but he who perfectly loves me changes me and causes my love for him to grow forevermore. Let's hear the conclusion of the matter, he says. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the fear of the Lord is merely a negative thing. It's tremendously powerful and positive. Picture Joseph. Lindsay and I were talking about this last night. Picture Joseph, who has a married woman grabbing him and offering herself to him. And what does he say? He says, how can I do this to my God? 
this great wickedness, sin against him, the fear of God kept him from. It was such a positive, powerful force in his life that kept him from destructive behaviors. It was the apostles in Acts chapter 4 when the religious leaders come and say, if you don't shut up and quit preaching about Jesus being resurrected, we will beat you, imprison you, and kill you. And their fear of God kicked in and they said, who are we to fear you over God or to listen to you instead of him? You judge between us which one's better, but we know what we're doing. We cannot stop to preach what we have seen to be true. You see, the fear of the Lord, it's the byproduct of our awareness of God's presence and our sinfulness. The fear of the Lord then becomes the catalyst for humility and love in the lives of God's people. As God takes his proper place and I take my proper place beneath him and worship him not just with song, but with my very life. You see, I just think, I really do, that fear animates more than we'd care to admit. But there is a fear that he's telling us here that conquers fear, the fear of the Lord. Hear the whole matter, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying. Fear God and obey. Centuries later, Jesus, the greater preaching king from the line of David, he arrives on the scene saying, this is the summation of all of it, of all the law and the prophets. Love God and love others too. And as the scriptures rightly said, we love because he first loved us. And that perfect love of God for me casts out all of my fears. His perfect love for me dispels every broken, fearful, false, fearful desire. It expels each broken fear that leads us into a broken existence in our broken world. 1 John chapter 4 says it this way, And we have known and believed that the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness, think of this, even in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Perfect love casts out fear. His love for me is perfect, and it frees me from my fear of men, my fear of loss, my fear even of judgment. My love for him and choice to place him in his proper position as the authority above me out of reverence for God and thanksgiving for him is the fear of God powerfully working and moving in me, freeing me. You see, his perfect love casts out false fears and still houses with inside it my fear of God my recognizing that he is God and I am not. Oh, hear the conclusion of the matter, he says. Fear God and obey his commandments, for God will bring every work into judgment, including the secret thing, whether good or evil. Isn't it beautiful that we're reminded that we'll all be judged? Or maybe it's terrifying to you. But if you turn to Christ, there's more than fear, there's love that you're greeted with. If he judges all, as he says here, he's really telling you that he sees all and that he's ready to justly judge you because he says for both the bad and the good, it's telling you that, that he can even reward you. The New Testament makes it clear that there's multiple judgments that humanity can stand before. 
different judgment seats that, that we can find ourselves at the foot of. The great white throne judgment is the eternal judgment of all, where mankind's decision in life will be honored in life after death. If we choose Christ, then we'll be with him. If we refuse Christ, then we will be honored. Our decision will be honored as we are separated from him. But there's a second seat of judgment that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that we can stand before. It's, it describes a unique judgment seat called the Bema seat. You should picture the reward stand at the Olympic Games. You do not compete for citizenship. If I win, then I belong. No, no, no. You compete because you are already a citizen. You compete so that you will be rewarded as a citizen. This is the gospel, that I have had my citizenship purchased. My membership in the kingdom and community, even in the family of God, has been paid for by Jesus. I belong, I live my life now to honor God, and he will reward me for it. Just like at the end of the Olympic Games, it doesn't, it's not like you go to compete for America, and if you lose, they're like, don't come back, you're done. We took your visa or your, you know, your passport, it's all over. No, there's a reward that's there. And in that moment, Scripture says that, that he, our God, the great judge, will expose the motives of men's hearts and reward whatever you do for God and others with a pure motive, even something as simple or small as giving a glass of water to someone who's in need. If thinking of God's judgment leaves you only with fear over what God can do to you, then may I suggest that you need to know and experience the love and gracious character of God that has been displayed throughout the ages and was once and for all proven at the cross. Oh, God is, if he is, only terrifying. If you are yet to receive the forgiveness and pardon that he offers, then it's true, you will find nothing but terror in thinking of God. But if you receive his forgiveness and pardon, you find yourself keeping God in his rightful place above you as Lord and King, and you humbly below him. And you are greeted with grace and an embrace again and again as he invites you, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give to you rest. You see, as we've been walking through Ecclesiastes, we've been asking along with the preacher, what really makes for the good life? And I'm convinced that the good life is not found in the possession of anything or even in any connection with any finite thing or person. His point here is that it's only found in the infinite God who's loved us and given himself for us and is transcendent. He's awe-inspiring. I love that Ecclesiastes 12:11 says, and he is a shepherd. Jesus would say in John 10 when he came, I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, for I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. You see, it's true, the Bible begins and ends with the statement that God made things good. Wow, the voice of Ecclesiastes says, it's all hevel. From beginning to end, that's what he says. However, the preacher in Ecclesiastes will not have the final word, not just because the author had a pen in his hand, though. Because there is a single shepherd who is the source of all wisdom and the final voice on true wisdom. And Jesus would arrive and say that the whole duty of man is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. My friends, the gospel of Jesus is not merely a piece of good news amidst a broken world full of bad news. The cross is an eternally constant, permanent reality which transforms and changes changes every other aspect and experience in life under the sun. 
Nothing is the same again when the cross is in view. So, Father, these are hard words. These are things that are different and difficult for us. But, God, when we think of you, truly, you are so awe-inspiring. God, when we think of you, you are massive, holding the universe in the span of your hand. God, capable in a moment of crumpling it all up again. God, you are so different. You are holy. You are perfectly just. You may not be safe, but you're good. God, you're awe-inspiring for each of us. Fill our minds and hearts with awe, a reverential fear of you, where you would remain in the place and position that you desire and deserve as Lord and King over each of our hearts, and that we would take the place beneath you humbly. In light of your holiness and our brokenness, our sinfulness, Jesus, I pray that that would free us from our fears and the broken pursuits that they seem to be a catalyst for in each of our lives. God, what a gift the words of the preacher have been. But Jesus, what a gift you are that you would have the final word. And so God, I pray for people who are here today who already know you that today would be a day that they would reconnect their life and their heart with you, that their mind today would be filled with awe-inspiring reverential fear of the great creator God who loves them and gave himself for them. Father, for those who don't know you, it is an overwhelming thing to consider these things, to stand before you as judge one day. And so I pray right now that they would turn their attention, Jesus, to you, the embodiment of God, taking human flesh on, being present with us, showing your desire for grace and mercy, and your willingness to extend it even at great cost to yourself. And I pray, Jesus, that you would captivate their minds and hearts, and that they would turn to you in a moment like this and say, Jesus, please, Jesus, have mercy. they would repent of their sin right now and ask you to be Savior and Lord and King. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.